Welcome to the Detroit Evening Report weekends, where, unlike during the week, where we focus on the news of the day, we spend some time with the people and places that make Detroit special. Today, we have Juma Say with us. Hello, hello. Hey, Juma. <laughs> Our listeners will have heard you mm-hmm. subbing during the Detroit Evening Report during the week. Yeah. So, you are very new to Detroit. I am. And uh, maybe we should explain, actually, how you come to be at WDET. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can do it because it's, it's a little confusing. So, um, essentially, I am a Croc Fellow with NPR. My fellowship is one year long. I go through four rotations, three months each. My first two rotations were in Washington, D.C., and the third rotation for all Croc Fellows is with a member station. Um, I, on my first rotation, the Washington desk, sat behind a man named Don Gagne. Listeners might be familiar with him, um, kind of radio icon, Detroit icon. Um, And he, you know, his infectious love for the city was something that I noticed, um, both sort of in word and action. I feel like he just communicated that WDET would be a station where I'd actually be able to do things and actually contribute to the newsroom. Um, and then he told me that the news director here was a black man. And I was like, so you're telling me <laughs> there is mentorship from a black man in public radio and a station where I can actually do things. I feel like I, I must run to the opportunity. Detroit is a city that I've always you know, heard a lot about growing up. Um, so just kind of felt like, you know, if NPR is going to pay for me to live somewhere for three months, why not it be here? And you've done a lot. I have. I have. Yeah. I'm someone who's moved around a lot. I counted the other day. I've moved 10 times. Um, I moved 10 times by the start of college. Um, And I I think I just say that to say that I'm very well versed in what it's like to enter a new place, pick up, and then go from there. Uh, And I feel like that's exactly what Detroit was for me. Again, it's not a place that I'd been, um, but nevertheless, it was somewhere that I really wanted to get to know and wanted to feel like I was earnestly a part of in my three months. Um, you know, I, I think that I've been able to achieve that and feel like I'm, I'm leaving here with a lot of meaningful connections that will last. Um, but yeah, 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 I've been, I've been up to a lot. <laughs> I think that's true. I've, you've done really good work and we've all really enjoyed working with you. Thank you. And um, you've, I know, collected lots of Detroit <laughs> stories. I have. Tell me about the story you're bringing to us today. Yeah, so the story that I'm bringing today is about a woman named Dream Hampton. Uh, She's a native Detroiter, but most people will probably know her for surviving R. Kelly. She executive produced the series. Um, Ms. Hampton was named after the 1963 speech that Dr. King gave here in Detroit. He gave um, what some call an early version of the I Have a Dream speech. Um, Hampton's father was in attendance and came back inspired and and kind of held the name for his daughter. So we just talked a little bit about that, about the city, about the history of the speech, about black radicalism, um, kind of about everything under the sun. Amazing. Well, let's listen to that. I was well into my 30s before I asked my dad how I got my name. And Detroit is a big deal to Detroiters. <laughs> he was like, you know, Dr. King gave the I Have a Dream speech in Detroit before he gave it in D.C. My dad would have been a late teenager. I guess he'd been holding on to that name in his back pocket. <laughs> and he named me Dream. So you said that you went about 30 years of your life without knowing the reason you were named Dream. Once you kind of found out, how did it how did it settle? 
Well, learning that I was named after the famous Dr. King speech coincided with reconsidering King in a more radical tradition. Back in the 80s, when I was in middle school, you had to choose between Michael and Prince. (laughs) There was a time when you were made to feel like you had to choose between Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Um, I, I'd chosen Malcolm. I listened to his, his speeches. Of course, his most famous speeches are also made in Detroit. The Ballad or the Bullet is one of them, one example. But by the time Dr. King arrives in Detroit, he's absolutely aligned himself with the labor movement. He's asking bigger questions beyond civil rights. This is ultimately what got him assassinated. As you think about you know, the 60th anniversary of King's speech and where Detroit is today, what are, what are your thoughts there? Detroiters think of Detroit as the kind of center of the very questions that America is constantly facing. Um, you know, just right to work. I think about absolutely NAFTA. I think about January 6th. I think about how we had a test run, an armed test run on our state capitol before they took it to D.C., right? Um a kind of post-capitalist landscape with basically a billionaire fiefdom downtown. All of these things were are, are absolutely bellwethers of what the rest of the country look forward to. Now, Detroit, we also consider ourselves, you know, at the head of innovation and at the forefront of progress and change. So it's not all bad news, but we certainly see the struggles first. I saw in uh, one of your interviews, you you said, my father named me after the Martin Luther King speech. My hippy-dippy parent, well, he wasn't hippie. He was Detroit. Speak a little bit about that. Oh, Detroit, particularly then. Are you kidding? In the 60s and 70s? I know that people used to drive from all over the region as far as New York to come and party in Detroit when Motown was at its like heyday. And my father got to live through all of that. He was known as Soul. That was his nickname, S-O-U-L. Like he was a working class man from the east side of Detroit whose family had come up from Alabama and landed in the Black Bottom. I know we talked about this a little bit already, but how much did he communicate to you what King's speech meant for the city? Um, you know, by the time the 80s roll around and I'm old enough to begin kind of asking political questions or thinking political thoughts, I would say that a lot of people who had lived through the 60s and 70s had kind of given up in a certain way. We talk about that. We talk about, you know, by the time the late 70s, by the time that the government and COINTELPRO and the government had used its resources to squash and kill true Black freedom movements. A lot of people were rightfully disillusioned and just formed cadres. And those cadres weren't always about politics. Sometimes they were about pleasure. Sometimes they were about picnics on Belal. Um, one of the <laughs> things uh, that you said earlier is that you see yourself aligning with like sort of a Black radical tradition. Yeah. Again, you know, the organization that I was a founding member of in the New York chapter of Malcolm X Grassroots Movement was named after Malcolm. And again, this speaks to this choice that we thought we had to make. So I was really excited and eager when I finally kind of slowed down from whatever my young kind of rhetoric was and looked at Dr. King's legacy. I was eager to jump in, eager to look at those speeches. I knew that he had made a pivot at the end of his life 
and that he was a young man when he was assassinated and he was still evolving, as was Malcolm. Malcolm's evolution is one that we just talk about as a part of his legacy. With Dr. King, we often freeze him in this one moment, this one speech, this one speech that he test drove in Detroit, <laughs> but that became famous, you know, on the mall in Washington, D.C., and, you know, it's just utterly unfair to Dr. King's legacy. Dr. King had access to real widespread people power. And 60 years is not enough time to, like, be over wondering what we lost when he sacrificed his family life. He sacrificed his youth and ultimately he sacrificed his life to make Black people's lives um, more free. Earlier when you were talking about the city, you said uh, it's not all bad news. And I was wondering if you could speak to uh, the good news. I, you know, am always encouraged. And I'm not one of the people who stayed. I'm one of the ones who left and came back, right? I'm always encouraged and looking to the people who stayed for leadership. People who, who never left, who like, who decided that, no, this city is worth saving, is worth staying in, it's worth building in, having children in planting gardens and it's it's worth it that was dream hampton speaking with juma stay dream hampton is probably best known for executive producing the series surviving r kelly I can relate to so much of what she's saying, you know, mm. the being the child of 60s radicals <laughs> from Detroit myself. I can really relate to the idea that uh, Dr. King and Malcolm X, were, their legacies were kind of pitted against each other. Yeah. And uh, at some points in history, mm. you know, Malcolm X was a bad guy mm. and Martin Luther King was a good guy. Mm. Uh, so it's really interesting yeah. how she frames approaching thinking about those legacies and yeah. specifically Dr. King's. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things that stuck with me is that it was something as, you know, weighty as the like Prince and Michael Jackson divide, you know, <laughs> and she kind of says it in jest and she kind of laughs, but it was, it was something serious, you know, and I think it was interesting to hear her perspective as someone who grew up after that history, right? And someone, when I was coming up in schools, it did feel like, all right, so if we talk about black radicals, we're going to be talking about Malcolm X. If we're going to be talking about, um, you know, folks who dreamed of unity and equality and like, you know, what was at a predominantly white granola independent school in Portland, Oregon, the message that they were trying to ultimately communicate, um, then we're going to talk about Dr. King. And I feel like one of the things that happened for me as I just began to like really read the writing on the wall as you know what I mean? Like, be like, all right, we... We every class done read letter from a Birmingham jail, but let's really see what this man is saying and let's really see the kind of acidity of his critique of the United States. You kind of realize that these two figures aren't necessarily diametrically opposed. Um, and I think that is it's interesting to see how that through line that she felt in her lived experience at the time is something that I registered coming up, if that makes sense. Um, so it does it does still feel like something that is. Um, it does still feel like something that is continually kind of living on in history. Um, and I think a big part of like the story that I ended up doing about this was trying to kind of 
almost rewrite the history of Dr. King, you know what I mean? Really prove that like, yes, this man was preaching equality, but he was also, uh, I think one of the things that, that one of the quotes that really stuck with me from the series I inter- of interviews I did, in addition to uh, Miss Hampton's, was uh, a reverend told me that Dr. King didn't just come to Detroit with a dream, he came with a plan, right? And I feel like that idea of concrete, substantive, um, a concrete, substantive vision for change is something that King is kind of stripped of. Um, and we just kind of think of him as the dreamer, you know what I mean? The preacher, the the person who had this like high ideal vision for the United States, when in reality, he was also, you know what I mean? He was holding a fire under their, their behinds, you know? Yeah. yeah, it's amazing to think that we could think of someone mm. who endured so much violence yeah. and arrest and conflict, who went through those experiences yeah. as... Um, you know, just a, a delicate person as yeah, like, you know, yeah, just, yeah. I, it's, it's amazing to, to think that we would succeed, mm, I guess, mm. in, in minimizing the kind of personal strength yeah. it takes to get up and do those things again yeah, every day. Yeah. And this is something I was thinking about as I was, um, listening to the speech because you know it's a it's a 32 minute speech and i'm doing a story i'm like i could i could spare 32 minutes on the whole thing um and i think that that's the thing is that king's character has been so flattened when what he was saying was like really and truly radical you know one of the other things that was really surprising to me about um you know the the march that king did that led to the speech that king did that led to you know dream's father getting uh, uh uh inspired and giving her this name is um, the NAACP didn't support the march at the time. Simply put, King was too radical for them. And that was that was a big, big deal. You know what I mean? They did not want this young, you know, radical, you know, visionary to come and like, I don't know, mess up the vibe or whatever. Um, so that's another thing. And and listening to the speech, I, I'm not going to say that, that uh, he was too radical, but you can really sense a radicalism, you know what I mean? One of the other sort of key things to remember about the speech is that 11 days before King came to Detroit, Medgar Evers had just been assassinated in Jackson, Mississippi, right? And when King is, is talking about this death, when he's reflecting on it in an in Cobo Arena at the time, he says that, you know, Ed, Evers didn't die in vain because if you have not found something that drives you to the point of being willing to die for it, then you have no reason to live. And he he, sa- he said, you have no reason to live. You know what I mean? Like, that's not an exaggeration. That's not hyperbole. That's just the kind of what was the urgency of the message at the time. Um, and I, I think it was honestly kind of sad and de- depressing to see what was such a nuanced um, and and you know multifaceted individual be flattened to just I have a dream and that's it you know it just feels kind of wrong. So tell us about mm. the story you did. Okay, so the story that I did um, obviously you know ran in twenty twenty three, but it starts in nineteen sixty three when. Um, the Detroit Council for Human Rights, again, not the NAACP, it was C.L. Franklin, I'm forgetting the other pastor's names right now, um, C.L. Franklin, Aretha Franklin's dad also, just for listeners that didn't know. <laughs> um, um, but they invited Dr. King to come march with them down Woodward Avenue and then, you know, subsequent that to give a speech at Cobo Arena to talk about the um, kind of violence that civil rights workers had been facing in the South, but also to talk about problems in the North. 
at the end of that 32 minute address, the last like four minutes, King goes into an I have a dream kind of like refrain. And that's what leads some people to call this an early version of the I have a dream speech. Was it the first time that King did this? No. In the process of reporting the story, I found out that the earliest recording of King, you know, giving some sort of I have a dream like refrain is from 1962 um, at a... Booker T. Washington High School in, I'm forgetting where, but in North Carolina, right? Um, so the story that I did is, is essentially a kind of like 60-year commemoration of that march told through the vantage point of um, primarily the unveiling of a Dr. King statue in Hart Plaza um, that happened, you know, the Thursday before the or the day before the 60th anniversary, right? The June 22nd, 2023. Um, yeah, I, I am essentially just talking... I start with a scene um, from the unveiling, you know what I mean, about uh, what it means to have this statue here, this emblem here, this marker here in downtown Detroit, and then use that as kind of a gateway to talk about that history that I um, had just kind of described. I keep thinking about, I don't know if you saw these, Mm. but um, a few years ago, very few years ago, I feel like it was actually... Uh, maybe around 2020, Mm. I would see these T-shirts that would say something like, I am not your grandfather's Negro. Mm. Mm. And it just seems so ahistorical. (laughs) 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 Just like, you know, I mean, I, it's, it's, yes, we can, we have a lot to talk about right yeah. now. Yes, absolutely yeah. that. Um, and we can. I'm not trying to quiet anybody's voice. Yeah. But imagining the kinds of uh, violence in the street mm. that activists endured yeah. during Dr. King's time. Yeah. Walking alongside Dr. King mm. during my, my grandfather's time. Mm. It just seems not only ahistorical, but disrespectful. Yeah. And I, I just have to say it out loud because I couldn't shake it. No, it does. It does. Um, the first conversation I had was with a man named Jay Butler, um, who's like a longtime radio host in the, the Detroit area. Um, um, and he was telling me about his experience being a young person in Tennessee. And he was talking about the, the lunch counter movement at the time and all this kind of stuff. And he was saying that a key part of the training and preparation for these demonstrations was, you know, practicing at home, like black folks sitting at, you know, fake lunch counters and being berated and smacked over the head and pushed around by other black folks just to say, can you withstand the kind of treatment that you're going to get here? Right. And I think Sometimes, you know, in schools, like you get this like really kind of um, incomplete picture that it was just like, you know, they they had the bravery to just sit at the lunch counter and da 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 da. But I asked Mr. Butler and I was like, you know, were you one of the people that could endure this? He was like, no, you know what I mean? We've been hit over the head. And I think it was just like a really sobering moment for me to be like, no, there was real violence. This was a this was real. This was this was in your skin. It was it was something insidious. Um, and I think that can sometimes be lost in the way that we talk about history. Um, so it's just something that I'd like to, that I've been thinking about and was thinking about as I was reporting this was, you know, in when it comes to Dr. King, it's not the rosy uh, picture that we're painted, but he was a radical and he was a nitty gritty figure with, you know, all kinds of nuance. Um, 
speaking for the people in a really urgent kind of way when it comes to these protests, you know what I mean? The sit-ins and so on. It was people literally risking their life, their body on the line and so on. People were thrown in jails, you know, and it just kind of feels like kind of bullet points of history now, but I don't know. It just, it, it, it was so much more than what it's made out to be. And I feel like maybe that's a simple point. Maybe people register it, but it, it, it just feels like it was, the the salience of that is counterintuitive uh, given the narratives that I was taught when I was in high school and middle school and elementary school. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting too, uh, thinking about the unveiling of a monument to Dr. King uh, in this period where we talk so much about monuments, Yeah, you know, and even talking about this speech made at Cobo Hall mm. where the name of Cobo has been changed twice now. Yeah. Um, because of the the racist history associated with mm. Kobo. Yeah. So tell me about the monument. Yeah, yeah. I think this was this was definitely a tension that I felt and kind of um throughout the weekend, right? That there is so much of an effort and an energy put towards commemoration. But again, as you know, Reverend Anthony told me in one of our first interviews, Dr. King came to Detroit not with a dream, but with a plan. You know what I mean? Um, and I think that was that was something that I was thinking about. Is like, all right, this is, there's a lot of commemoration here, but I'm also interested in what ways these kind of symbolic uh, markers of progress are then going to be reflected in the material reality of Detroiters. Um, this was something that I was really interested in, talking to folks who were at the protest to be like, what are you marching for today? There was a lady um, that I spoke with who had a sign that was essentially demanding reparations. Um, she <laughs> it said uh, something to the end of like, grandma's demanding reparations. And I talked to her and she was so passionate and so... Um, so so fervent in her 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 claim that this is not just this ain't about the symbolism you know what I mean this isn't about one thing or another it's like no people have lost their homes in this city and that's not something that can just be given back and I want reparations for that so I think that's just something that I've been thinking about um, throughout all of this right it's like a statue is cool you know it is and it means a lot and I don't want to at all undercut the value of that kind of symbolism. Um, but it just also seems like, you know, when when some of the folks that have been responsible for the way that Detroit has changed uh, in recent history and, you know, what some would say has not necessarily been negative change or like sponsoring the march. Yeah, no, it just makes you think. It just makes you think, especially as a journalist that just has questions and is wondering about, you know, who's who, what people's stake is um, in this and, and what people's intentions are as well. Thank you so much for bringing us this story, Juma. Thank you. Thank you. It was, it was really and truly just a privilege to work on it. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm gonna say this, feel free to cut it out if you want to, but, uh, I'm a very sentimental person. I don't know if y'all picked up on this, but I'm, I don't know. So being at this March was crazy to me, right? Just thinking about it all. Um, but it also just meant a lot for me in my personal life because, and I'm leaving Detroit this weekend, um, and it kind of just felt like kind of entering a new season as a journalist. And this has by far been my favorite process for a story I've experienced yet. Um, and funnily enough, my favorite process for a story before this one was one of the first stories I reported in February. Um, and it was about a parade at a high school, Freedom High School in Woodbridge, Virginia. So I just think it means, I don't know, I feel like there's something there, right, that I... I 
kind of started this journey in some ways with Freedom High School in Woodridge, Virginia, and I'm ending it with the Walk to Freedom in Detroit, Michigan. Um, yeah, that's all I have to say. <laughs> we don't like to think of journalism as an emotional mm. process. Yeah, yeah. Um, but journalists are people. Yeah. And I feel really privileged mm. to be in a place and in a space where our work is about connecting to yeah. people. So yeah. I think it's a wonderful thing. Thank and you. I appreciate you. <laughs> I appreciate you, Sasha. <laughs> Thank you, dear listener, for joining us for the Detroit Evening Report Weekends, where we spend some time with the people and places that make Detroit special. If you know of anyone or anything we ought to know about, drop us a line at Detroit Evening Report at WDET.org. Thanks so much. We'll see you Monday. Thank you.